I guess the dead matter, but they only matter to the living, and that's why we do funerals. Um, the dead don't care. I, I can I can tell you this after 25 years as a funeral director. I have never had a dead guy say to me, "I'd really rather the blue pinstripe suit um, or the oak coffin, or you know, I'd rather mums than donations to your charity." I've never had them utter a word of preference. So I know that the dead don't give a rap. The dead don't care. Nothing but blue skies do I see Blue birds singing a song Nothing but blue birds all day long On the other hand, uh, the dead do matter and because the dead matter, the living seem to want to take their leave of them in ways that say they are different from cocker spaniels or rhododendrons, you know, or rocks they see in the road. Our dead matter to us, and funerals are a way of taking leave of them. Um, now, there are I could give you, like, the long version of this. Uh, John Bowlby wrote three volumes on attachment and separation and loss. But Bodilu Bryant wrote wonderful words that Roy Orbison later sung that amount to the same thing when he wrote and Roy sung, Love Hurts. And that is the short course of why we do funerals, because when we form attachments, when we love, and those, those attachments are broken by death, we hurt, we grieve. And that is the way our species does it. We Love, we grieve, we breed, we disappear. I mean, those are the biological and emotional facts of, of the matter. So a funeral is an effort, I think, to give voice to this unspeakable part of our nature, that we die, we grieve, we care, we hope, we fear, we're angry, we're upset, we weep, we laugh, all these things that go into making a good funeral um, are what I'm involved in. But a good funeral isn't a good casket. You know, we wouldn't confuse a good ring with a good marriage. And uh, uh, a good funeral is not what we buy. It is what we do with our dead. So the first and foremost thing that people can do is be there, go there, stand there, wait, Watch, listen, help. So I say, you know, it's not so much whether or not we bury our dead or burn our dead. Um, the question isn't between interment and cremation. But if we bury our dead, bring a shovel or stand and watch while the shovels are used. And if we're going to burn our dead, bring fire or stand and watch while the fire burns the body. That basic witness, the living witnessing what's happening to the dead, what we're going to do with them, how we dispose of them properly. I think that's the, that's the fundamental etiquette of a funeral. That's the fundamental good form. This is called a death. 
In the end, you want the clean dimensions of it mentioned. To know the thing adverbally, while asleep, after long illness, tragically in a blaze. As you would the word of any local weather, where it gathered, when it got here, how it kept the traffic at a standstill, slowed the pace, closed the terminals. Lineage and issue, names and dates, the facts you gain most confidence in facing, histories and habitats and whereabouts. Speak of it, if you speak of it at all, in parts. The CVA or insufficiency or growth that grew indifferent to prayer and medication. Better a tidy science for a heart that stops than the round and witless horror of someone who, one dry night in perfect humor, ceases measurably to be. We were all, you know, we all as children, as young adults, had, um, I mean, we were aware that our father was a funeral director in the way, and I suppose that makes us aware of death and mortality in the way that, you know, the children of, clergy know that their parents are involved with souls, or the children of physicians know that their parents are involved with sickness. Um, I think most children become um, conscious of death from a very early, I mean, angel of God, my guardian, dear to whom I mean, that's a prayer of protection, you know, or now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, <laughs> I pray the Lord my soul to take. I mean, this, we are we are told about it early on. Even though we don't understand death in the in an adult way, we certainly understand that it is in our nature. I don't think any child gets through their, you know, their first couple years of consciousness without seeing, you know, dead things, roadkill, you know, um, pets that die, uh, things that go away and don't come back. So. I don't think my my experience as the child of a funeral director uh, was any different than the experience of any child for whom, you know, uh, mayhem and blood and gore and murder are everywhere on the TV and that type of thing. So, But the first time I can remember seeing a dead body was when I was maybe 10 and going to work with my father on a uh, Saturday and I was not told, you know, get ready, you're about to see a dead guy and this will scar you for life or perhaps you'll be neurotic. I was just told that we were going to work. And I was aware that his work involved dead bodies. And in those days, the embalming room, the preparation room was at the back of the funeral home. And, you know, we parked in the back parking lot and we went through the back door. And there in this room was, um, you know, this man laid out on a table. He was covered by a sheet except for his face. And, um, I, you know, I can remember about him that he had big earlobes and a bald head and he looked like a man old enough to be dead. And I, um, I asked my father what his name was, um, what age he was and how did he die? And I was given answers for all those questions, though I don't remember what the answers were. And then we went on to the next thing, which I think involved moving flowers around. And in, in, in a very real sense, it seemed quite natural, you know, to see a dead person. And as it turns out, it is 
you know, it is the signature part of our nature. It is the thing that we humans do. In fact, everything that live does. We die. And, I mean, it is the one thing that we all do. We don't all, you know, pay our taxes. We don't all sleep with another member of our species. But we all die someday. We all, you know, turn up breathless and horizontal. And we get spoken of in the past tense. And and so really that experience, while, you know... Some people will go, oh my goodness, he was 10 years old when he saw his first dead body. I guarantee at 10 years old, that would have been 1958. By that time, I had probably seen uh, 50,000 fake deaths on TV. You know, the fellow on Gunsmoke that got shot every Friday night was uh, dead. That's what they wanted us to believe. So seeing a dead body in, in real time a really dead body, mm, did not scar me uh, in any way that I can think of it. It seemed natural. Still does. In Paradisum, sometimes I look into the eyes of corpses. They are like mirrors broken, frozen pools, or empty tabernacles, doors left open, vacant and agape, like votives cooling, motionless as stone in their cold focus, as if they'd seen something, as if it all came clear to them at long last, in that last moment of light perpetual, or else the black abyss of requiems and nothingness. Only the dead know what the vision is, beholding which they wholly faint away amid their plenary indulgences, in paradisum de ducante, we pray, their first sight of what is or what isn't. I started coming here 30 years ago um, in February of 1970 because I had um, survived the Nixon lotto for Vietnam. I wasn't, I got a high number in that lotto, which meant I wouldn't be drafted. And um, I was floundering at university and I was enamored of Yeats and Joyce and Kavanaugh and I decided I'd come to Ireland and read and find my way in the world. And uh, I also knew that I had cousins here in West Clare because I'd been told so by my grandfather and, you know, family tradition. And um, so when I decided in late 1969 to come to Ireland, I wrote to them and they said, you know, come along, it's, you're welcome here. And so that's how I got here in February of 1970. And... Um, I just, I just really found it um, warm and welcoming and very much um, a kind of... It, it explained a lot about, the, you know, my own people. 
And I recognized in Tommy and Nora Lynch, who were brother and sister living here at that time, you know, so much of sort of family traits. And uh, for better or for worse, I just, I mean, they made me very welcome. And I, I spent, I think, four months here that first time. I worked as a night porter in Killarney and did odd jobs and uh, stayed as long as I could. And then uh, came back the following March when Tommy died quite suddenly. And after Tommy died, and when I came back for that, I think Nora began to think of me as her family. This was a woman who was then um, just south of 70. She had no one. She'd never married. And so I became her family. And I was a third cousin, but I was the one who came back. And uh, over the years, she'd come to America, and I'd come here. I never... You know, I never, it was never very long between visits. And um, after 1980, I was coming twice a year at least. And so when Nora died, she left this, this cottage to me. And I felt very connected to it. I feel very lucky to have it. And I, now I come a couple, three times a year, whenever the opportunity arises. So, I mean, one of the first things I ever, uh, sort of the first family shrines I ever came to when I was here, uh, was the, the the vault down in the cemetery in Wayarta where our people are buried, where actually the men who um, whose house this first was, my great-great-grandfather, um, his tomb and the tomb that has been used ever since uh, that he built uh, is down in Moyarta. And that's the name of this poem, Moyarta. When Patrick Lynch's wife, Hanora, died in 1889... He built this vault. So keen was his bereavement, only stone would dull it. He drew slates down by the cartload from the quarry in Movine, with which he built the deep walls and the taller gabled end to stand against the rush of rain and wind that garbled even sentiments in stone. Smooth gray rocks from the Shannon were drawn up to make the floor to set her coffin on, and down from Liscanner by turns he brought the mighty ledger flag, eight foot by four, on which Mick Troy from Kilbalioan, the famous stone cutter from out the west, cut deep these words that Pat had given him. Erected by Pat Lynch in memory of his beloved wife, Hanora Lynch, alias Curry, who died October 3rd, 1889, aged 62 years, may she R-I-P-I-H-S, amen. All that's there still. You may go and see it. So we're in Moyarta Cemetery at uh, near Carrigaholt, a little estuario uh, village in, uh, in West Clare. And you can see here the River Shannon and carry across the way and uh, the village down below us. And this burial ground, which has been here for centuries, um, uh, do you know, is on the banks of the River Shannon, which is what I was always told to be mindful of, that our people were here on the banks of the River Shannon. And this particular tomb, this vault, was built by my great-great-grandfather, who's, who's buried here. He built this uh, when his wife was sick, uh, he and his brother built it. In fact, his brother 
it is said, lost an eye in the construction. A chip of stone uh, went into his eye. So, yeah, it's an important place for me, only because it's, it is the known place. Uh, and I think a lot of Irish Americans um, uh, probably envy uh, my ability to come to the place where my great-great-grandfather is buried and to sit in the house that my great-grandfather came out of uh, to go to Jackson, Michigan a hundred years ago. This is about my father. Uh, in the months before he died, he had a heart condition, so people would say, you know, how's he doing? And we'd say, if he's alive, he's great. You know, green bananas. My father quit buying green bananas for what he said were the obvious reasons and made no plans, the seasons giving way to days or parts of days spent waiting for the deadly embolus the doctors always talked about to lodge itself sideways in some important spot between his last breath and the one that would not be coming after that. Then he said, let's go out for Chinese. He had wonton soup, egg rolls, sweet and sour, grinned when he opened the fortune cookie, winked at the waitress, left her a huge tip, was dead inside a month. Well, people have asked me about that before, about my father's death, and I've written about it at, you know, at some length. There was a piece I wrote called Embalming Father, and um, people, because when my father died, he died in Florida, and our home is in Michigan. And, you know, my brother Pat and I got on a plane and flew down to Florida and uh, embalmed him and dressed him and put him in a box and flew him home so that my brothers and sisters, you know, could begin the, you know, the, the wake and the funeral and the rest of it. People will say to me, well, was it difficult embalming your father? And I think what was difficult was that my father died. And I think that is a difficulty for everybody who's had a parent die. Embalming him was like, it seemed to me like what you'd do if you're an embalmer. You know, if you were a cook, you'd bake a casserole. Um, if you were a florist, you'd send flowers. But my father um, had taught us to embalm, and it seemed like if you have a house full of embalmers, the very least you can expect from them is that they'll take care of you. So we did. And I must say, you know, sort of the duty of it, the, the doing of it, um, was helpful. Do you know, it was something I could do. And I think that's what, when someone we love dies, that's one of the first things we notice, that we feel so helpless. We feel so out of control because uh, there's nothing we can do to fix this. And certainly embalming isn't fixing this, but it is something we could do. And in that sense, we were doing it for our other siblings and for the people who would eventually come and pay their respects and see him to the end, you know. But, um, yeah, it was, it was for me very, very good. It was good duty. I'm glad I did it. And I wish I didn't have to do it. I wish he never died.
couplets. Two girls found dead. My sons go to the morgue. Two cots, thick rubber gloves, two body bags. Two long stuffed in a culvert, raped and stabbed. Two decomposed to recognize. Two sad. Two local ne'er-do-wells no doubt abused too much as children themselves stand mute. Two caskets in a room, two families undone. Two ministers, two homilies, my sons, too busy with flowers and townspeople to contemplate the problem of evil, to shake their fists at God regard instead. Two funerals, the living and the dead, to be transported in their separate griefs. Two hearses to be washed, two limousines. Today the wakes and paperwork details. Tomorrow a burning and a burial. Two girls found dead of known brutalities. Together forever, precious memories, too sweet, too savage, too beautiful and bad to keep at bay by ritual or words. Two boys about their father's business learn to number, comfort, witness, and keep track. I mean, over the years, you can, um, and particularly when you live in a small place and you see people, when you see those people, you often remember the circumstances under which you met him, which, which were often difficult circumstances. When you walk through, when I walk through, you know, Milford, for example, I know the deaths that happened in this house or that house and the circumstances around them. And, uh, yeah, there are, I guess there are deaths that are, in a sense, less appropriate less timely than others. Do you know, when children die, when cars run off the road, or when trains, you know, come to grief with, with uh, students crossing the tracks, you know, those are terrible things. When people are murdered, um, when people shoot themselves, um, those are memorable, I suppose, because they, um, they are outside what we reckon is the normal flow of things. But I must say that, uh, you know, all funerals have about them a, a certain memorable quality. There was this fellow uh, just, you know, a couple months ago that we buried, and I remember his parents. I buried both of them, and they were good, solid, sort of Southern Baptist people who read their Bible every day and, you know, had the kind of faith that furnished their heavens. You know, they knew who was going to be there when they got there. They knew what the furniture would look like. They knew who'd be there for supper and that type of thing. Their son, however, had gone off to the Korean War and come back um, interested in drink and gambling and women. And um, he led, I suppose, a difficult life. He'd been married three or four times. He'd always had trouble with, you know, keeping a job and uh, I suppose he drank too much, and um, you know his children uh, had uh, ambivalent connections with him. And he died on a Friday night at the Veterans of Foreign War Hall in Milford, quite suddenly of a heart attack. 
I think he was 67 or 68. And when his daughter came in to make the funeral arrangements, she said, um, you know, I don't know who will get to officiate at the funeral. We don't have a, a minister or a priest because he never went to church and he was sort of at odds with religion in general. And she said, but the, the young pastor who buried my grandparents, could you contact him? And I did. I called him and he said, oh, yes, I, I knew him I, because I knew his parents well and they were members of my church. And he came to do the funeral and he said, you know, let's say this man's name was Robert. It was a different name, but he said, Robert um, had a difficult time keeping his body and his soul aligned, which was a way, I suppose, of saying that he was a sinner like the rest of us. But um, this minister was, I think, especially um, humane. And he, uh, he finally said that during his youth, Robert would have been to Baptist summer camp and would have heard a hymn played over and over. And at that point, this young pastor pulled out a harmonica and played two verses of Just As I Am, which is a tune that basically says that whatever we've done with our life, you know, God takes us home just as I am, just as we are. I thought it was an amazing bit of, of a funeral oratory, and, uh, and it suited everybody that was there. And the other one I remember was Garrison Keeler at the memorial service for uh, Judge Harry Blackman, um, who'd come from Minnesota. And uh, there was a, a line of Supreme Court justices in their robes all lined up in the front pew, and Garrison Keeler allowed us how probably the best thing that could be done for in memory of Justice Blackman because he was, uh, he was fond of this song was for everyone to sing a couple verses of the Whiff and Poof song. Do you know? We are poor little sheep who have lost our way. Bah, bah, bah. And to see those august bodies, those Supreme Court justices enrobed and, you know, enraptured by Garrison Keeler singing that silly song, I just thought, that's a good day at a funeral. It really was a good day at a funeral. Yeah. We're poor little lads who have lost our way. Humor is highly and, and best used when it gets people to think about things they wouldn't have otherwise thought. You know, I was flying across America, and just at the border of California, after crossing the desert, I looked down and could see a, a, a patch of green, a very organized, purposeful patch of green at the foot of the San Bernardino Mountains. And I remember thinking, that could be a golf course. 
And then I thought, no, it could be a cemetery also. And then I thought, well, this is California. It could be both. And it occurred to me that people always think of the land used on cemeteries as a waste of land, land wasted on the dead. Whereas they never think that about golf courses. And, you know, we're opening golf courses all the time. Um, and cemeteries infrequently. But still the little plot reserved for the dead is reckoned a waste, while, you know, the acres and acres reserved for the pleasure of the living is considered, you know, land well spent. So I thought, well, if we turned our cemeteries into golf courses or allowed our golf courses to be used as cemeteries, we could get we could get past this problem, and we could also get past the problem that people always have on Sunday with what to do with the afternoon. You know, in Victorian times, people used to go to the cemetery, visit their dead, you know, check the graves, be sure the flowers were blooming, be sure everything was clipped up, and they might have a picnic out there. I mean, it was very much a part of the... The normal and natural family landscape included a visit to the cemetery. Uh, but now, of course, we're always looking for an excuse to go golfing. And I thought, you know, if, if, they, if we could visit Uncle Larry at the same time as we were, you know, doing a quick nine, it would work. And the sand traps could be used for, you know, scattering ashes. So could the water hazards. Um, you know, we could put people's names on golf balls and, you know, uh, memorialize them that way. We could sell, you know, big home lots around the periphery of the golf course. And I don't know. It just seemed like the highest and best use of it. And I thought I was just kidding about it, you know. I, I, but I wanted people to think about the difference between the cost of things and the value of things and the use of things. But, you know, they were opening a new uh, baseball stadium in San Diego last year, and one of the early proposals for the planning of the stadium included turning the center field home run fence into a columbarium and people could have their ashes uh, installed in the home run fence, I think for $5,000. And I know that, you know, the space program has been selling, you know, sort of seats, you know, for the cremated remains of the um, luminous dead, you know, for a huge price you can be blasted into space or impaled on the moon. Um, and there's a whole new sort of cottage industry growing up around what to do with folks' ashes to try to combine them into, in some useful way. You know, we can make duck decoys or egg timers out of them or kitty litter for that matter. So this general sense that things are more than the, the sum of their parts is, I think, a particularly American uh, uh, idea. Multitasking, multiple uses, these are things that are, you know, very, very 21st century. And it strikes me, you know, whenever we have people come to pick up the ashes of their dead, I notice that some people treat them like, you know, sort of remnants. And some people treat them like icons. Some people will throw that wee box full of ashes in the, you know, in the back seat like it was an extra pair of shoes or a bowling ball or something. Others will strap it in the front seat with a seat belt, you know, and put a pillow in front of it as if it were a baby, or something as precious as a baby. And it occurs to me that the box of ashes can be uh, a variety of diff different things, just like the bodies of our dead can be, um, and just like the land we use for the living and the dead.
I'd rather it be February. Not that it will matter much to me, not that I'm a stickler for details, but since you're asking, February. The month I first became a father in, the month my father died. Yes, better even than November. I want it cold. I want the gray to inhabit the air like wood does trees, as an essence, not a coincidence. And the hope for springtime, gardens and romance, dulled to a stump by the winter in Michigan. February. With the cold behind you and the cold before you and the darkness stubborn at the edges of the day and a wind to make the cold more bitter so that ever after it might be said it was a sad old day we did it after all. And a good frost hold on the ground so that for nights before it is dug the sexton will have had to go up and put a fire down under the hood that fits the space to soften the topsoil for the back hose toothy bucket. Wake me. Let those who want to come and look. They'll have their reasons. You'll have yours. And if someone says, doesn't he look natural? Take no offense. They've got it right. For this was always in my nature. It's in yours. And have the clergy take their part in it. Let them take their best shot. If they're ever going to make sense to you, now's the time. They're looking same as the rest of us. The questions are more instructive than the answers. Be wary of anyone who knows what to say. On the subject of money, you get what you pay for. Deal with someone whose instincts you trust. If anyone tells you you haven't spent enough, tell them to go piss up a rope. Tell the same thing to anyone who says you've spent too much. Tell them to go piss up a rope, too. It's your money. Do what you want with it. But let me make one thing perfectly clear. You know the type who's always saying, when I'm dead, save your money, spend it on something really useful, and do me cheaply? I'm not one of them. I never was. I've always thought that funerals were useful. So do what suits you. It's yours to do. You're entitled to wholesale on most of it. As for music, suit yourselves. I'll be out of earshot, stone deaf. A lot can be said for pipers and tin whistlers, but consider the difference between a funeral with a few tunes and a concert with a corpse down front. Avoid, for your own sakes, anything you've heard in the dentist's office or the roller rink. a mess made in the snow so that the earth looks wounded, forced open, an unwilling participant. Forego the tent. Stand openly to the weather. Get the larger equipment out of sight. It's a distraction. But have the sexton, all dirt and indifference, remain at hand. 
He and the hearse driver can talk of poker or trade jokes in whispers and straight face whilst the clergy tender final commendations. And you should see it until the very end. Avoid the temptation of tidy leave-taking in a room, a cemetery chapel, the foot of an altar, none of that. Don't dodge it because of the weather. We've fished and watched football in worse conditions. It won't take long. Go to the hole in the ground. Stand over it. Look into it. Wonder and be cold. But stay until it's over, until it's done. On the subject of pallbearers, my darling sons, my fierce daughter, my grandsons and granddaughters, if I've any, the larger muscles should be involved, the ones we use for the real burdens. If men and their muscles are better at lifting, women and theirs are better at bearing, and this is a job for which both might be needed, so work together, it will lighten the load Look to my beloved for the best example. She has a mighty heart, a rich internal life and powerful medicines. After the words are finished, lower it, leave the ropes, toss the gray gloves in on top, push the dirt in and be done. Watch each other's ankles, stamp your feet in the cold, let your heads sink between your shoulders Keep looking down. That's where what is happening is happening. And when you're done, look up and leave, but not until you're done. So, if you opt for burning, stand and watch. If you cannot watch it, perhaps you should reconsider. Stand in earshot of the sizzle and the pop. Try to get a whiff of the goings-on. Warm your hands to the fire. This might be a good time for a song. Bury the ashes, the cinders and bones, the bits of the box that did not burn. Put them in something. Mark the spot. Feed the hungry. It's good form. Feed them well. This business works up an appetite like going to the seaside or walking the cliff road. After that, be sober. This is none of my business. I won't be there. But if you're asking, here is free advice. You know the part where everybody is always saying that you should have a party now? How the dead guy always insisted he wanted everyone to have a good time and toss a few back and laugh and be happy? I'm not one of them. I think the old teacher is right about this one. There is a time to dance and it just may be this isn't one of them. The dead can't tell the living what to feel. They used to have this year of mourning. Folks wore armbands, black clothes, played no music in the house. Black wreaths were hung at the front doors, the damaged were identified. For a full year you were allowed your grief, the dreams and sleeplessness, the sadness and rage, the weeping and giggling in all the wrong places, 
the catch in your breath at the sound of the name. After a year, you would be back to normal. Time heals is what was said to explain this. If not, of course, you were pronounced some version of crazy and maybe in need of professional help, but whatever is there to feel, feel it. The riddance, the relief, the fright and freedom, the fear of forgetting, the dull ache of your own mortality. Go home in pairs. Warm to the flesh that warms you still. Get with someone you can trust with tears and anger and wonderment and utter silence. Get that part done. The sooner the better. The only way around these things is through them. I know I shouldn't be going on like this. I've had this problem all my life, directing funerals. But it's yours to do. My funeral, not mine. The death is yours to live with once I'm dead. So, here is a coupon good for disregard, and here's another one marked my approval. Ignore with my blessings whatever I've said beyond love one another. Live forever. really wanted was a witness. To say, I was. To say, daft as it still sounds maybe, I am. To say, if they ask you, it was a sad day after all. It was a cold, gray day. February. Of course, any other month, you're on your own. Have no fear. You'll know what to do. Go now. I think you are ready. <laughs> 